Today's first scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 25, uh, 4, verse 25 to chapter 5, verse 9. Let's listen again for a word from God. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The word of the Lord. So you heard it in church, it's okay to sleep. Just get, get comfortable. Like I tell the kids, it's okay to yell in church, to be yourself. Sometimes, sometimes church is fatiguing. Uh, I get it. Just, just hold on a second, we'll see. Let's pray. Loving God, we're grateful for your presence with us, especially in your word, your word in scripture, your word in your son your constant word by virtue of your spirit, always reaching out to us, seeking to give us the gift of abundant life. Bless us as we meditate together upon your word this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Did you see the article in the New York Times book review just a little bit, about a week ago um, about the quietest place on earth? Anybody see that? Uh, it's in, as you might expect, Minnesota. It's in the Midwest. Um, it's actually at a place called Orfield Laboratories in Minneapolis. In uh, this noise measuring room, it has a fancy name which is called an anechoic chamber. Anechoic 
chamber. Anechoic means, as you all know, I'm sure, non-reflective. And now you can impress your friends at parties with that word anechoic um, or quiet room uh, because you'll be able to tell them that not only is it a cool name to say, it means a room that is constructed to stop the reflection of sound waves so effectively that in this anechoic chamber in Minneapolis, the sound level is measured in negative numbers, which is all pretty cool. Companies pay a lot of money to use this room to measure, for example, the sound level of their products. NASA's astronauts spend time there to get ready for the utter silence of outer space. The only problem is nobody can stay in that chamber very long. Now, uh, a quick and then an even longer search led me. Uh, it's, it's, it, 45 minutes was what I got first, and that was actually the, the number used in the New York Times uh, article. But it turns out that it's become kind of a competition, people to go into that room and see how long they can stand the silence. Think about it. It is so painful every Sunday morning, that silence during the prayer of confession. When you're up here leading it, you can feel the pressure. Let's get, let's get moving. Let's get going, right? Uh, I know you feel that way right now. Um, it turns out that we have a hard time putting up with an absence of sound. Right now, the record is just under two hours, about 119 minutes in this chamber. After that, people start to lose whatever it is, their marbles, and they have to get out of there. It's just too quiet. And of course, we've all heard people say, we've thought, we've dreamed, oh, I could just use myself some peace and quiet. And we in New Jersey, we fantasize about moving to Montana. People who look for, uh, looking for a new house or apartment always want to live in a quiet neighborhood. Um, there's even a website now called howloud.com, which you can use to find out how loud your neighborhood is or the neighborhood you want to move to is or to find a neighborhood that is quiet enough for you to live. Howloud.com takes public reports and data on traffic noise, airport, no, airport, airport noise, say that three times fast, noise from restaurants, manufacturing plants, traffic, and creates a sound score for every zip code. And that way you can find out where you want to live, theoretically. But I think that people overestimate how much they value silence. Again, we have a hard time putting up with it. We can't stand silence and quiet and rest, especially we in this country. And by the way, I'm from the Northwest. I've been to Montana. It does not all look like Yellowstone. Most of it looks like the surface of the moon. It is so quiet and so lonely and empty, you just want to get out of there fast. I mean it. Believe me. Trust me. It's a scary place. Um, but have you noticed that there are really sounds all around us even now going on that we've learned through an adaptation to block out? And if we are able to block out sort of the ambient surrounding sounds, we can hear our own breathing. If you listen, and if you're lucky, you can hear your church's heating system in a day like this. We can hear the sounds of traffic outside. Sometimes when there's snow here, uh, you can hear the snow sliding on the top of this sanctuary. It's kind of like, a, like an avalanche up there, and it's a little bit disconcerting. Um, we are constantly surrounded by noise, all of us. 
and we have gotten used to it. Whether we realize it or not, noise is everywhere, and it is part of who we are. Um, when I first moved to New York City from small places in my life, it, uh, the noise was overwhelming. But pretty quickly, like everybody else in New York, you get used to it. Um, uh, at first, I had, I had trouble sleeping because of all the sounds and the sirens and people yelling and this and that and the traffic, ho horns honking. Um, but then, you know, the radiator going off constantly in weird times of the night, just very, very loud place to live, trains, everything. Uh, and pretty soon, you know, you get used to it. And then if those noises don't happen, you wake up, right? You get used to this sort of as being a part of who you are. I had a friend in seminary. We were invited to go on a, a retreat at an Episcopalian uh, a seminary in upstate New York. And what I remember, it was a silent retreat. And what I remember about that is that at the, um, at the, in the dining hall, whenever we'd go in for, they would always have, they'd play these whale sounds. <laughs> Episcopalians are interesting people. And, um, and it was, you know, it was nice and funny, but then there was one night when we had chili, and it was just really funny, because it just was a very, very funny thing. And, but, but this one friend of mine took a cassette tape back in those days of traffic noise, because he was a New Yorker, and the silence was too much for him. So he would play the traffic noise to help him go to sleep. Right? We take our noise with us. And today, as we haven't already sort of gleaned from what's been happening so far, I'd like to talk together about this moment, according to Matthew's gospel, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, when the word of God, as Matthew tells the story of Jesus, has something to say to us about the power and importance of quiet and rest. Now, I am like Graham's father, and not just in age and not just in profession. I'm, I'm actually kind of an introvert. I, I, crowds, I love them. I'm, I, do, I do okay in them, and then I go home and take a nap. I mean, extroverts get energy from crowds. I go home and take my naps, you know. Uh, and as I've said here before, and some of you know, I'm one of those people, I, I can go 1,000 miles an hour, but I can also go zero miles an hour quite happily. I'm married to somebody who always goes steadily about, I'd say, 604 miles an hour, someone who never stops and who, for whom a nap is a moral failure, right? So er, I think I might have said here before, uh, early on in my uh, marriage, my mother-in-law, my late mother-in-law, who loved me and her, still loved, and loved her daughter very much, called me up one morning after apparently some tension had been reported. And I, normally she was very talkative and very friendly to me, but I pick up the phone, hello, and she goes, Greg, my advice, look busy. And she hung up the phone. <laughs> it's great advice. Just move things around, and then when she goes to work, go back to bed, fine. Today we're going to take a look at, you know, really familiar verses in Matthew's Gospel. They only occur really in Matthew. Luke has a sort of a condensed version of what of the content in the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke is called the Sermon on the Flat Place or the Plain. But Matthew's the famous one. Jesus goes up the mountain and he preaches the, this famous sermon, probably the most famous sermon ever, ever preached. But I'd like to just look at the less familiar part of today's passage from Matthew with you. And you've got it in front of you in your bulletin this morning. I, there are ten verses. They're easy to count. There's one, then there's nine. One in one chapter, nine in the next. That equals ten. But I just would like to look at the 
one verse from chapter 4 and then the first verse of chapter 5. I'll focus there with you this morning. Chapter 5 being the famous chapter in Matthew where we have the Beatitudes, which are the very first verses of what becomes a much longer Sermon on the Mount. And we know the other eight verses anyway, right? There's a lot of blessed this and blessed that, right? Very familiar. It's all very nice. We like to be blessed. All of us do. Uh, and so um, we're prepared, you know, when we ever we hear the Sermon on the Mount to leave feeling better a little bit, unless we actually read the words. Because the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, are not that comforting. They're really more disconcerting and challenging. It is a hard teaching, but like so much of God's word, like so much of the messages we get from the universe, from God every day, uh, it's easy to misunderstand unintentionally or intentionally what God is trying to say to us. Jesus knows that, I think. God knows that. We all have a tendency to bring our own noise and to co-opt messages and use them as we would like to use them. We don't like to hear things we don't like to hear. We don't like to hear things that ask something of us that we're not prepared to give. I don't know about you, but it wasn't that many years ago that I stopped doing when my father or my mother would say something to me I didn't want to hear. Blah, 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 blah. It really works. You have to, you have to do this, though. It, it creates all kinds... And you can't hear a word that's going on. Sometimes um, I would say to Sarah, if she was calling me and asking me to do something, I'm stuck in the tunnel. I can't hear you. Click. You know, you, you, use, you use it for your advantage. And that's what we do, I think, when we hear a lot of Christian messaging. We sort of want to interpret it as sort of nice, you know, feel-good, kind of goody-two-shoes, kind of warm fuzziness when it's really quite challenging. And those messages, those words contain in them an invitation or a challenge to actually make a change in our lives, or at least to go deeper in our lives than we are comfortable doing. Because we know what's coming, right? After these first two verses this morning, we know all these blesseds are coming. But what are they? What do they say? Is, it, are they talking about, is he talking about us? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Now, most of those conditions, meekness, uh, mourning, are things we try to avoid every day of our lives, right? We're supposed to be strong and happy. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are at the end of their rope, who've bottomed out. These are hard words. Mark Twain once said that the section of the New Testament give that gave him the most trouble were not the sections of the New Testament that he, could under, that he couldn't understand. What gave him the most trouble were the sections that he could understand. Because there were implications. He'd rather avoid. The sermon that Jesus is about to lay on his disciples and anybody else who's up there on that mountain, that sermon contains something completely new and radical. It's as new and radical today as it was 2,000 years ago. Why? Because we still don't want to hear it. And once those words were out there, that sermon was out there in the world, once it sunk in, a lot of people decided they didn't want to hear it either, and eventually those kind of words got Jesus executed. We'd prefer to let 
the noise that's around us and within us lead us to misunderstand what Jesus says. Jesus, the self-expression of God. That's what we Christians believe. That we would rather, it's easier really, to misunderstand and interpret his words so that we can use those words for our own ends, our own purposes, which are sometimes very noble, very good, but not what he wants from us, which is a change, a deepening. I'm going to use a very academic source here now as an illustration. How many of you have seen Monty Python's classic film, Life of Brian? It's an excellent film, and compared to a lot of Jesus films, it's pretty accurate in many ways. If you don't know about this film uh, from the 1970s, Life of Brian gets at this tendency we have with all the noise around us and all that's within us, all of our anxieties and insecurities, this tendency we have to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Brian was a baby born, Jewish baby born, a couple mangers down from Jesus. And throughout the movie, he is confused with the Messiah. People are chasing him and following him. He doesn't want to be chased. He doesn't want to be followed. But there's one scene where he happens to be up on that mountain while this guy that was his exact same age was born just a couple mangers down. Now as an adult, this guy Jesus is actually preaching the Sermon on the Mount. But Brian is at the back of the crowd. It reminds me of the worst date of my life. I took a woman on a date in San Francisco to a Bruce Springsteen concert, but I could only afford the cheapest ticket. I couldn't even tell who it was down there. I mean, it was like a little dot, right? Luckily, they had speakers. Life of Brian's uh, Sermon on the Mount scene is a classic scene. And you know, for something to be funny, it has to have one essential element, and that's truth, right? This is a very, very, very funny scene. Uh, Jesus' words are misunderstood by us all, and not always unintentionally, and they lead us to some pretty unchrist-like conclusions and behaviors sometimes. And so this illustration is dedicated to all of us knuckleheads who interpret Jesus selfishly and self-centeredly. Uh, and it goes like this. In this scene, at the back of the crowd, trying to listen to the Sermon on the Mount before there was amplification, right? How, how, how big could that crowd have been? Um, they're all trying to hear what Jesus is saying. And while they're all kind of straining to hear, there's a couple back there that's bickering. They're talking like many couples do. And so one of the characters, whose name is Trouble, uh, says to the wife uh, in the of the bickering couple, could you just go and talk to him somewhere else? I can't hear a bloody thing. And then the other person, whose name is Big Nose, says, don't you swear at my wife. And then Trouble says, I was only asking her to shut up so I could hear what he was saying, Big Nose. And then Big Nose's wife says, don't you call my husband Big Nose? And then Trouble says, well, he has got a big nose. And then another man says, could you all be quiet, please? I can't hear a thing. Um, and then someone says, I don't know what he's saying anyway. It was something about blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> and then another man says, well, obviously that's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any, the manufacturing of any dairy product. <laughs> And then the trouble says, see, if you hadn't been going on and on, we'd have heard that, Big Nose. And Big Nose says, hey, say that once more and I'll smash your bloody face in. And the trouble says, you better keep listening. There might be a bit about blessed are the Big Noses. So they're fighting in the back there when Jesus is up front talking about blessed 
are the peacemakers. We have this tendency to let our own desires, our own anger and insecurity sort of co-opt the gospel message so often in our lives. So let's take a look really quickly. For, verse 425, the last verse in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. You know, these narrative transitions, should, we shouldn't skip over them too quickly. They, they have a lot in them. Let's break down what Matthew wants us to get from this one verse. People come to be around Jesus from Galilee, the northern section of what is now Israel. It's where he grew up. They come to see him and be around him from the Decapolis. The Decapolis, as you might, if you speak Greek, would know, is ten cities that were situated just across the Jordan River uh, from what is now Israel. On the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire, they were really sort of the center of the Roman and Hellenistic culture in those days, as opposed to the more Jewish western side of the Jordan River. People came out from Jerusalem to hear Jesus and to be around him. They came from all the area around Jerusalem called Judea, or the southern kingdom. And of course, they came, Matthew says, to be around Jesus, to crowd around Jesus, to throng around Jesus from way beyond the Jordan, way out east. So in this one verse, Matthew paints a picture that we sort of kind of skip by typically, but really what we see is you, on, one, on, the, on the west you've got, the, you've got the, the Mediterranean Sea, but from the north, south, and east you've got people coming, right? Think of sort of one of those military maps where you have arrows. They're all coming at it. Jesus, in these early chapters of Matthew, has been born, he's been baptized, he's been tempted, he's called his first disciples. We looked at that last week. And in one verse, a few verses before our reading today, we find out from Matthew that Jesus has gone around proclaiming the good news, healing and teaching, and people love him. People like you and like me who have burdens, who have hurts, who have insecurities and emptiness. They are going to him, thronging to him, and everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants something from him. Another Jesus movie from the 1970s, I'm dating myself, I know, is Jesus Christ Superstar, one of the most theologically correct, I think, accurate films about Jesus ever made. But there's one scene among many that's really our that's a very memorable scene, and that is when Jesus starts to get surrounded by crowds and by lepers, everybody who is ill is trying to get something from him. The song is called See My Eyes. And the music starts out happy, everybody loves him, he's very popular, but it subtly shifts to a more ominous tone, and pretty soon it's getting dangerous. The crowds are really pressing in on him, and it's making him very, very anxious, and the words go like this. People are singing to Jesus, all these people, more and more voices, it gets kind of scary. See my eyes, I can hardly see. See, my, see me stand, I can hardly walk. I believe you can make me whole. See my legs, I can hardly stand. I believe you can make me well. See my purse, I'm a poor, poor man. Will you touch me? Will you mend me, Christ? And this keeps getting over and over and over. Will you touch me? Will you heal me? Will you cure me, Christ? There's a bit of a sort of a, a dangerous, ominous, chaotic sense. Now we move to verse 1 of chapter 5. Let's read together. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain, and after he sat down, which was the traditional teaching posture 
of a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, his disciples came to him. The crowds are surrounding him. They're pressing him. He's very popular. He's going viral. And Jesus gets out of Dodge. He goes up a mountain. It's meant to evoke, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, it was all about evoking Jewish scripture, the Old Testament. Moses on top of Mount Sinai, where Moses meets God. Now you have Jesus up there initially with his disciples. It's not exactly clear who comes up for the rest of the sermon, uh, but the, the traditional location of the Sermon on the Mount is on a slope of a mountain on the Sea of Galilee's northern shore. It's a beautiful place. The slope of the hill would have formed kind of a natural amphitheater, and a lot of us have seen images, paintings of people trying to figure out what that might have looked like. Um, what we get in this text is a lot of crowds who want to be near Christ. Can you blame them, right? Um, things are about to change. We're going to get some justice finally. Or we're going to get some healing finally. We've got Jesus on our side. Jesus is on a roll, and I want to be with him. So it must have come a surprise and seemed very strange, not only to the readers of Matthew's gospel, but the disciples themselves, when Jesus walked away from it all, walked away from this popularity. We want likes. We want attention. We want recognition, most of us. But Jesus, he's the opposite. He didn't want any of that because people had their own agendas for what they needed from him, and we still do. We're like big nose. We interpret the way we'd like to. But the question is a good one if we look at the scripture. Why interrupt a good thing? Why uh, not see that this is a perfect time to get more people to follow him? Why didn't Jesus capitalize on the moment? Probably because he knew that it was going to be a hard teaching for his disciples once they heard what he had to say, once they heard who is truly blessed in this life, in this Christian journey that we're all on together. I think that we can take away sort of three parts of the, an answer to this question. Why interrupt a good thing? Why escape up a mountain? Why seek silence? Why seek rest? When it really seems like it's a time to act, right? To leverage people's needs, their willingness to pay even to follow Jesus. I think the first part of the answer as to why Jesus does what he does is he wants anyone moved to follow him, not just Andrew and Peter and James and John, but you and me as well. He wants us all to see that the true blessings of life are not found in the comforts of this world or the power and prestige which we're all sort of in our own way trying to achieve. That's not where blessedness is found. He is trying to model for us, I think, in this incredible story that the secret to life is to get off the merry-go-round. It doesn't mean don't get up and go to work. It simply means where do we put our heart? Where do we put our main focus? Where do we put our self-worth? It doesn't matter how well you do. It doesn't matter how comfortable your current circumstances of life may be. If you don't have peace, if you don't know where your next achievement is coming from, if you're always worried about what people think of you, whether I, if I'm, I'm only worth something if I do well again and again and again. Jesus says here, blessed are those who don't put their hope in the comforts and achievements of this world. And that's a hard thing to hear. 
because it means a massive shift in priorities in the way we look at the world. He needed them to get up to a quiet place to hear those words, to really hear them in a place where it wouldn't be drowned out by all the noise and all the noise that we bring so we don't have to hear hard stuff. The second part of the answer as to why Jesus would even do this is that he wants us to believe and to know that we're only truly blessed if we who follow him, who want to follow him, live fully in two worlds at once. A woman by the name of Kate Bowler has a podcast entitled Everything Happens, where she discusses the issue of God and suffering God and why bad things happen to good people. In fact, that's going to be the theme and topic for our meeting later today with our confirmation class today. They want to know the answer to that, don't you? In her podcast entitled Everything Happens, Kate Bowler interviews a man named Jerry Sitzer. I've heard of him because he is a professor at Whitworth College, a theology professor at this Presbyterian undergraduate institution in my hometown of Spokane, Washington. I never met him. I've just heard about him. Uh, and one of the things I know about him and, and this amazing book he wrote is that he experienced unimaginable pain and loss when his wife, mother, and daughter were killed in a devastating car accident in the late 1980s. It's unimaginable, really, what he went through. And in her interview with him, in Kate Bowler's interview with Jerry Sitzer, he said, I just think we all live in a fallen and broken world. It's broken everywhere. It ricochets everywhere. Consequences topple from one to another. And we just have to live in that world, this broken world of ours. And when God chose to roll up his sleeves and get involved, it wasn't like pulling strings and solving problems immediately. It was stepping into the story as a human being who became himself a victim of that same suffering and brokenness. Hard words to hear, to sort of confront the fact that we and the world around us, we, we are broken. We're not as perfect as we aspire to be, and that's okay because there is hope for us. We're not meant to live this broken life alone. We have someone who can put all the pieces back together. Jesus and his life and ministry in this early part of Matthew are laid out before us, and we have to find blessing in the silence to be ready to hear what he has to say, which brings us to the final thing that he teaches, I think, in this really brief couple of verses in the passage that comes later, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants us to know that God in the flesh has already stepped into this broken world, has already lived the same life of joy and disappointment and hurt that we do to guarantee that we will always be with him, no matter what, that we'll never be alone, always loved into abundant life if we're only willing to let ourselves be loved that way. I'll conclude with a story about Dan Lewis in, this, uh, in his uh, email newsletter called Now I Know, where he shared the story of a man named Joe Cerna who was sentenced to serve a 24-hour stint in a North Carolina jail for a DUI, driving under the influence and violating his probation. Uh, the district court, a guy named Judge Lou Oliveira, didn't want to pass the sentence on Dan Lewis because, you see, Judge Oliveira knew that Joe Cerna was a Special Forces combat veteran who had escaped death three times in Afghanistan 
and still suffered severe PTSD from his multiple tours of duty in the service to his country. So Judge Oliveira, who himself is a former Green Beret, decided that Joe Cerna would not serve his jail sentence alone. He served that 24-hour sentence, 24 sentence in jail right alongside Joe Cerna, the judge and the convict, so to speak, in the same jail cell. And they stayed up most of the night talking and sharing a plate of meatloaf. And in, a, in an NPR interview with Joe Cerna and Judge Oliveira, Cerna reports that this conversation in jail was the first time he ever opened up to another person about what he had experienced in war and in life. He said, so thank you for being there for me, for just being there with me. It means a lot to have someone in your position who understands. Friends, that's the message we get if we're willing to enter the silence, to put away the noise, not just around us, but within us, and to be willing to follow. We'll know that wherever we are, we won't be alone. Thanks be to God. Amen.